Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm pleased to be speaking again today with Mick Ryan, a retired Major General of the Australian Army. Mick served in the Australian Defence Forces for over 35 years and was, until recently, Commander of the Australian Defence College. Today on the podcast, we're continuing with our series of deep dives into warfighting strategy and leadership with a discussion of Mick's recent book, War Transformed, The Future of 21st Century great power, competition and conflict. And I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. This book is a deeply thoughtful reflection on war fighting and the future of war that presents a comprehensive overview of the way in which war has been researched and written about over the centuries, including punctuation points that have prompted changes in military capability and strategy. The book also indicates elements that are important for us to consider if we want to understand the way in which warfighting is likely to transform into the future. And here, Mick draws on his considerable experience to frame the key elements that are going to be important as we go forward into our quite complex and dynamic 21st century environment. So I look forward to discussing some of these issues on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me today, Mick. Thanks, Jessica. It's great to be back with you again. It's obvious reading the book that considerable research time and thought has gone into its writing. So what drove you to write this book? Well, there's a few reasons. Firstly, I've always been a reader ever since I was a kid. And throughout my career, I've read different books, journals, listen to podcasts to try and keep up with the state of the art in strategy, technology, and the military profession more broadly. And I just thought that I had a contribution to make in this area. Uh, but second, as a, as a military leader, you know, we, we should pay it forward. We should ensure the next generation is well prepared for the challenges they will face, which will probably be much more difficult than any of the ones I faced. So for me, this was, I thought, a, a leadership and a personal responsibility to pass on what I'd learned, what I'd researched, and what I thought might be some useful insights for future military and national security leaders. Mm-hmm. That certainly comes across very clearly in the book. You talk about the importance of curiosity and a focus on developing intellectual capacity capacity being a really important factor to pay attention to when we're looking at the training of military personnel. Could you say a little bit more about why that factor is important? Yeah, there's a there's a fascination uh, among many in the technologies of war, uh, whether it's artificial intelligence, hypersonics, tanks, ships, planes, um, logistics systems. But at the end of the day, none of these things actually win wars. They help. None of them are silver bullets, though. The greatest uh, contribution to successful military operations in thousands of years of recorded history is people and how they think, how they use their will to persevere under the most trying of circumstances, how they use leadership to inspire people in the most terrible of battles and the most prolonged sieges and how they use their intellects to develop new ideas, new tactics, new strategies and new organisations to better utilise new technologies than an adversary might. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And you also talk about in that regard how it's really important for leaders to want to win 
And Mm. in the current more complex war environment, like, for example, if we think of the current war in Ukraine, how does a military leader know, okay, I've reached a point where I can say that I've won? The specific example of Ukraine actually will be pretty simple for military leaders to know when they're winning. It means they're killing more Russians than the Russians are killing them. And the Russians have got their backs to them running back over the border and uh, giving back the Ukrainians their territory. Uh, That would be a very simple way of understanding (laughs) whether you've beaten the Russians or not. And the Ukrainians have actually been doing a lot of that. But more generally, you need to be able to define what success looks like at different levels in a military organisation, you know, tactical success, high-level operational success where you combine lots of battles into campaigns, uh, strategic success, which links all those military activities to the political objectives, which at the end of the day are the dominant aspect of war. Wars are about achieving political outcomes and military objectives support those political outcomes. You mentioned another interesting point there that you discuss in the book, this difference between sort of the tactical, operational and strategic levels. And you also talk about the importance of the element of surprise at each one of those levels. What do you mean by that? And why is that element of surprise so important when we're looking at military strategy? Well, surprise is something that we've always sought to achieve against an adversary, Uh, not just in the military, but in the commercial world, you want to surprise your competitors by bringing out a better product that can be distributed more widely, that has higher quality and has uh, better market take up than those of your competitors. But in the military context, surprise is not an end in itself. Surprise generates shock. It can Mm. generate shock in individuals where they can't function properly. It can generate shock in institutions where the leaders aren't able to cohesively build a response to that surprise. And it is during that period of shock at different levels where most success is potential, where you can exploit the enemy's shock to either kill as many as possible or take as much ground as possible or still imagine any of the informational, diplomatic or economic ways that might be the political objectives of a war. So surprise is about generating shock and, and you what you want to do is exploit that shock. These days, however, it's harder to generate the kind of advantage where you can surprise people and generate shock. So what you need to do is probably lots and lots of small connected surprises and shocks rather than one or two big ones. Mm-hmm. The book really focuses on the future of warfare, how war is going to transform as we go forward. And the book was published in February, just prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, if I'm correct on that. Nine days before. Nine days before. And yet you have an interesting discussion in the book where you talk about how some commentators suggest that large-scale violence is a thing of the past, saying that really this is something that we don't need to concern ourselves with anymore as a society. And then we have the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, of course, other conflicts have been going on all the time, but haven't been perhaps as much in the international spotlight. So you actually say in the book that violence is not a thing of the past, that it's a constant part of the human experience and also that violence, let's say, on a national scale in terms of the importance of militaries and militaries being able to have the capability to achieve their objectives using kinetic force if they need to. So could you talk a bit more about why you said that and then maybe how you reflected on that once Russia did engage in the full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, I think some of the wishful thinking of scholars who engage in this decline of violence theory hasn't helped societies 
to defend themselves. And it certainly hasn't helped people understand what they're seeing in Ukraine. What we're seeing in Ukraine is absolutely normal in human history. It may not be constant, but, uh, you know, almost the entirety of human existence, certainly those bits which we've recorded, is punctuated by people who decide that fighting is a good way to achieve what they want, whether it's more land, more riches, more citizens or more honour. So I was really concerned and I wanted to tackle these theories that that's all going away or it's certainly declining. I just don't think the evidence is there. At heart, humans are competitive and we haven't demonstrated any capacity to reduce our competitive spirit. It doesn't matter whether it's in sport, in business or in fighting each other. Humans still compete. And unless there's some kind of change in human nature, which I don't think there's too much evidence for, we're going to continue fighting over things that we want. Mm -hmm. And maybe even in some ways putting ourselves at risk if we don't acknowledge that there is always that possibility that there could be military conflict or outright violence as a way to try to achieve Mm -hmm. objectives. So I have no problem with people hoping for the best, Mm -hmm. but it's not a strategy. (laughs) You can hope for the best, but you must as a nation, prepare for the worst. Otherwise, the leaders of that nation are engaging in the most irresponsible behaviour. And in some ways, we've seen that with certain European countries really caught off guard by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and having sort of turned away in the past decades from investing in, not all, but some, in investing in that sort of military capability and preparedness. Mm. Some, not all, thank goodness, but there are certain nations who are still engaging in that kind of cognitive dissonance and want to kind of force some kind of fake ceasefire because it suits their political objectives. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we could say is a constant over time. But you also talk about things that have changed and transformed in the way we think about warfare and war fighting. For example, each industrial revolution led to specific changes in military capabilities in terms of technology. We sort of talk a lot now about the fourth industrial revolution, which includes these kind of overlapping, complex, fast-paced changes in digitization, artificial intelligence, use of big data, cyber warfare. What do you see as the important ways in which that is impacting and is going to impact war fighting? Yes, I guess the important thing is what you just said. This is the fourth uh, recognised industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, our history since the late 1770s has been punctuated by these periods of technological change, starting with the first industrial revolution and and steam-based power in the United Kingdom. These aren't just technological events. Technology is part of it, but what they result in is shifts in societies, shifts in where humans live. People move from rural areas to urban areas for employment. This has changed the wealth of nations. It's changed the wealth of governments to be able to provide different services to their people. So industrial revolutions are way more than just technological events. They're societal events. And societal events, some of them are quite disruptive, have an impact on military institutions. Mm -hmm. So what do you see the key ways in which this focus more on the cyber dimension, the information dimension, what are the key ways in which that's going to sort of reconstruct also our military capability or 
the focus of militaries? Well, this fourth industrial revolution, like the previous three, has technological drivers. But the first, second and third industrial revolutions were very much in the physical realm, whether it was steam engines, whether it was uh, wireless communications, trains, planes, automobiles, Mm -hmm. rockets, nuclear weapons. This industrial revolution is a little bit different. It is taking place at least partially in the cognitive realm, where through the development of high-performance computing, artificial intelligence, big data, um, and a range of information technologies, we're starting to see the means to replicate some aspects of human cognition. We're not talking about human-level intelligence and some debate whether that's even possible, but we're seeing Mm -hmm. in this revolution a cognitive dimension that we didn't see in the first three. I think that's what makes it a little bit different. And that's changing how we research, how we connect physically and and in the cyber domain. And it changes how militaries might be able to construct advantage for themselves in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And I guess further emphasises that point about why it's so important for military personnel themselves to have that curiosity and intellectual capability so that they will know how to use or engage with these new kind of artificial intelligence capabilities. Yeah, it was something I was very keen to pursue. Certainly in my last couple of jobs, we established multiple courses loosely defined as technological literacy for leaders or technological literacy for strategists, because you had to keep up with some of these new technologies, not be a have a doctorate or be an engineer, but sufficient literacy to be able to improve policy and improve strategy to take account of some of these new technologies. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it's a very thoughtful book that seems relevant to militaries all over the world. It's not specifically focused on Australia and is really looking at how do militaries develop the best capability to go forward in the current environment that we're dealing with globally. So in that regard, What do you see as the key global security threats that we're going to face in, let's say, the coming decade? Well, there's obviously a couple. The alignment of China and Russia, and as we've seen, China has shown no willingness to dispense with its Russian friend despite its atrocious war crimes in Ukraine and its you know, other awful behaviours over the last few months. So that alignment of two major powers that don't believe the global system serves their purposes at the well is a threat to Western democracies uh, and democracy more broadly. Um, they certainly have a narrative of the West in decline, although that has certainly been challenged in the last four months. And I think um, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board on that particular information campaign. So that is a a significant threat to Western democracies in the 21st century. The other one is internal, how we see ourselves Mm. as democratic societies. You know, I think the superpower of democracies is that we can consider all options available in any challenge. And what we need to do in the future is assure ourselves that we are making best use of that superpower and not arbitrarily dismissing different policy options just because they're unattractive to uh, one side of politics or the other. At the end of the day, national interest needs to drive best policy, not the narrow interests of certain elements on a political spectrum. Mm -hmm. In some ways, you're indicating there a sort of a sociocultural factor around how do we approach new information? How do we integrate information? How do we look at issues from different perspectives and try to understand what's the best strategy? I guess on that sociocultural point, I was interested in the 
the book that you mentioned that also within military institutions, the culture of decision making is important. You know, in your experience working in the military for many decades, what are the factors that facilitate a good or healthy cultural environment? And what are those that might lead to a less healthy cultural environment? And how did you deal with that as a leader in the military? Um, There are multiple areas where you can go right and where you can go wrong in a military Mm -hmm. institution. I think one area that is very important is your military institution must remain closely connected to the society that it serves, which is also the society from which it draws its members, Mm -hmm. and that it should understand its place within that society. And that whilst we seek to build the very best soldiers, sailors and aviators we might, elitism and loyalty to that organisation can go too far if not done well and not within an appropriate civil military relationship. Um, The second one is in a military culture, you need an environment where people are able to provide input where they're listened to. But at the end of the day, a decision is made and we apply decisions. There's unity of effort. And in the execution of those decisions, people have a little bit of freedom in how they execute and we call it mission command. Another element of culture that's important is a learning culture where if you succeed, the lessons of that that success are fed across the entire institution. And if you fail, firstly, you recognise openly that you have failed and we aren't always good at that. Mm. And secondly, you learn the lessons and you implement the outcomes of those lessons of failure as well. Mm-hmm. It's something that could be applicable beyond military institutions as well. It's I applicable feel... to every institution. Exactly. And I feel there are a lot of takeaways there in the book that are more broadly applicable about leadership and about culture, etc. In that sense, I also feel that this book is for a wide variety of audiences. It's for the generally interested reader like myself who would like to understand more, not only about the military and how war will transform over time, but also about elements like leadership effect strategy, etc. But one of the audiences seems to be the soldiers of the future. If you were speaking to military leaders of the future, what would you say or what would be your advice for that audience? Well, I've done a lot of that in the last decade. And to be quite honest with you, I think the generation coming through the middle and lower ranks in the Australian military and in the army in particular, because that's my particular area of expertise, are just so much better than my generation. Like you can't compare the two. Mm -hmm. They're smarter, they're fitter, they're more worldly, they're more operationally experienced, but importantly, they're more connected, not just with each other, Mm -hmm. but with a global ecosystem of young professionals where they share lessons and insights. There's always a little bit of wisdom us old people can pass on, but we're in really good shape with the next generation coming through. I guess the advice that I always used to give people at the college and and in other jobs, there's there's a few things. Firstly, you need to be intellectually humble and curious. That, That sets you up for learning. You need to, you know, read, read a lot. You know, I read for hours a day. That's how you keep up with change in the world. Mm. But it's also a good way to rest a weary mind at the end of the day because sleep is also a weapon for a military leader. Mm. Third, I'd say, you know, understand competition. I know we've talked about it, but don't be comfortable with pass-fail approaches or what you see in some schools, non-competitive sports. That's actually not setting people up for success. The world Mm. is competitive and we need to prepare ourselves for that. I also like to advise people, you know, do what Martin Dempsey, you know, great American generally say is 
Nurture responsible rebellion. Never be totally satisfied with the status quo. So challenge ideas where you can, challenge ways of doing things. Mm. And finally, the most important thing a leader can do, I think, is provide purpose to those they lead. You can give people tasks and direction and they'll comply. But if you give them purpose, you provide the why. That's what inspires people under the most terrible of circumstances to do the most courageous and amazing things imaginable. That's a brilliant point. We need to understand why we're doing what we're doing and have that sense of purpose. Well, thank you so much, Mick. I really appreciate you being with us today and talking through some of the issues that are discussed in your book. Obviously, there's a lot more in the book itself, but listeners can find that out for themselves. So appreciate the discussion today. Thanks, Jessica. It's been a pleasure to be with you again, and I hope our listeners are able to read and and enjoy the book. to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.